This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Murder Methods, Mass Murder. So far, I've told you about Howard Unruh's walk of death in 1949, Richard Speck's killing of eight student nurses in 1966, and the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre in 1984. One thing all these crimes had in common was that they were all perpetrated by men, which led me to the question, are there female mass murderers? And the answer is definitely yes, but they are much more rare. Violent crime in general is committed by men in higher rates. Women commit only 10 to 13% of homicides in the U.S. Mass murder in particular is an overwhelmingly male phenomenon. According to an article in Live Science, female mass murders are so rare that this type of crime really hasn't even been studied. But we can still make some general observations. Men overwhelmingly choose firearms to kill, whereas only 8% of women who commit homicide use a gun. In comparison, 40% of poisonings and 20% of deaths by fire are linked to female perpetrators. Status tends to play a larger role in mass murders committed by men. Men who have gone through life feeling less than often take out their frustrations on society or certain groups of people, co-workers, classmates, etc. Status particularly tends to play a role in school shooters. Those who feel left out, excluded, and sometimes bullied or otherwise put down by their peers are more often linked to school shootings. One of the rare exceptions is Brenda Spencer, the teenage girl who committed one of the first U.S. school shootings. I detailed that case in Episode 8. However, the school Brenda targeted for her rampage was located across the street from her house. She did not attend the school, and the people she shot were not her peers, unlike most male perpetrators of this type of crime. Women, like men, however, often have the motivation of revenge when committing mass murder. Women most often seek to retaliate against people that they believe they are in competition with for jobs or relationships. Women also more frequently target those they have relationships with, as opposed to strangers, as we see most often in male mass murderers. In this episode, I will share three short stories about this rare phenomenon. This is Chapter 4, Female Mass Murderers. Hey, I want to give you another true crime podcast recommendation I know you'll like. If you haven't listened to Suspect Convictions, you need to check it out. Like Serial, Suspect Convictions covers a single case over one season. Scott Reeder was a young reporter in 1990 when he arrived at a fire and found himself in the middle of a crime scene. He was looking at the charred body of a nine-year-old girl. A suspect was soon identified, arrested, charged, and convicted for this horrible crime. But 27 years later, the case is still being investigated. Was the person accused of killing Jennifer Lewis guilty? Reeder has covered the case from the investigation, to the trial, to the appeals, and now is podcasting about the new trial that has been granted by the Appellate Court. It's a fascinating look at the judicial system, as well as a compelling backstory about the victim, the accused, and their families and communities. I, along with Charlie from the Insight podcast, we're honored to be asked as guests on the latest episode to discuss the case. So binge listen and catch up, and then listen to the discussion this week. You can find more information about the show on suspectconvictions.com.
44-year-old Jennifer San Marco was returning to California in 2006. She had moved from the small town of Goleta, located just west of Santa Barbara, California, three years earlier. Now she was back, and she had murder on her mind. She drove up to the condominium complex where she used to live before moving to New Mexico. It was about 7.30 p.m. Her previous next-door neighbor, Beverly Graham, age 54, still lived there. Jennifer had come to pay an unannounced visit. She didn't like Beverly. They had argued when they were neighbors. Beverly complained about Jennifer singing loudly in her backyard, which was just feet away from her own front door. Jennifer would also scream out profanities and go on angry tirades for no apparent reason. Beverly, who got fed up with the noise, would yell at her to shut up, which led to arguments between the two women. Now, three years later, Jennifer came to exact revenge. She went to the back of Beverly's unit, scaled the fence that surrounded her back patio, and then walked into the home by way of an unlocked sliding glass door. Jennifer raised a 9mm Smith & Wesson handgun and shot Beverly once in the head. Jennifer left just as quickly as she had come, this time walking out of the front door. But Jennifer wasn't done yet. She had more people to get even with. Jennifer San Marco was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1961. By most accounts, which were few, Jennifer was just a normal girl. She was pretty and quiet, and it seems sailed through school without much fanfare. She attended college at Rutgers University in New Jersey, but left school before obtaining her degree in natural resources management. In her late 20s, Jennifer decided to move to California. She had a cousin who lived in Santa Barbara County, who helped her find an apartment in the town of Goleta. Jennifer's landlord at that time remembers her as being polite and friendly, but not once in the 14 months she lived there did she have a friend or any other visitor to her home. She got a job, first as a secretary, while attending the State Correction Officers Academy. After completing her training, she applied to the California Department of Corrections to work as a guard at a medium-security prison. She underwent background checks and mental health evaluations and passed with no problem. She was hired to work at the Chuckawalla Valley State Prison. There are no reports of any problems while employed at the prison, but Jennifer left her job two days before her probation period ended. She held a number of jobs after that, including working as a Santa Barbara police dispatcher. For that job, she also had to undergo a screening, including a psychological evaluation. She passed and was hired, but found the job difficult and stressful, and left after only a few months, which was not uncommon for that position. Finally, in 1997, she began working nights at the Goleta mail sorting plant for the U.S. Postal Service. She worked at the plant for six years, and during that time, purchased her condominium. For the first few years, Jennifer's co-workers recalled that she was quiet and didn't socialize much, but seemed normal. But in 2002, Jennifer began to exhibit bizarre behavior. She would talk to herself and argued with an unseen person. She often made racist remarks. One former co-worker recalled that she was particularly hostile towards Asians. She never threatened any of her co-workers, however. Her former supervisor said, She seemed to be having conversations and there wasn't anyone around her. She'd just be jabbering away. Finally, in 2003, the police were called to her workplace and had to drag her out from under a sorting machine after she created a disturbance. She was taken to a mental health facility on a 72-hour hold. 
It is not known if she received any treatment or therapy there or afterwards. She returned to work about two months later, but her behavior continued to be erratic. She would scream and say a lot of racist comments, a former colleague said. It was pretty ugly. After several more complaints from her co-workers, Jennifer was placed on involuntary medical leave from the Postal Service in June 2003. She was escorted out of the building by management and received a disability payout. Jennifer believed that her termination from the Postal Service was a conspiracy against her by the government. Later, some writings found among her possessions would determine this. She put her condo up for sale and decided to move back to New York, where her brother still lived. She was driving back east when her car broke down in Grants, New Mexico. While she waited for it to be repaired, she decided she liked the peace and tranquility of the area and decided to stay. She found a small house on a hillside between the village of Milan and Grants and moved in. She soon became known in both Milan and Grants as the crazy lady. She would talk to herself and more often would rant and rave. She seemed to be angry almost all of the time. She was also frequently seen kneeling in the road by her car. When a concerned citizen once asked her if she was okay, she responded, they liked to pray before getting in the car. They, it was assumed, were imaginary people that only Jennifer could see. Other behaviors townspeople described included ordering food at restaurants and then running out of the door before eating it, and stripping off all her clothes in public places. Police were called, but she would put her clothes back on before they arrived. In the summer of 2004, she filled out paperwork at the Milan Village offices to get a business license to launch a publication she created called The Racist Press. It was just a printed version of her rants that, among other assertions, linked the U.S. government to the Ku Klux Klan, as well as David Berkowitz, known as the Son of Sam serial killer. Her writings were also diatribes against various religions and races. Her application for the business license was turned down. She continued to make visits to the office, however, and became fixated on one female employee. She would sometimes come in and just stare menacingly at her or yell insulting statements about her. The woman says that they all realized she had mental problems and that she felt sorry for her. One day, Jennifer came into the office once again, and the manager, tired of the harassment against his employee, called the police. She was let off with a warning, same as she'd been when she was reported for public nudity. Still, Jennifer was able to purchase a firearm. In August 2005, she purchased a 9mm handgun from a pawn shop in the city of Grants. She filled out an application for a background check, which didn't turn up any problems, so she was able to pick up the gun two days later. Five months later, Jennifer returned to Goleta and killed her neighbor. She then drove 10 minutes away to the mail processing plant and distribution center at 400 Stork Road, arriving just after 9 p.m. She was able to get past the security gate by following closely behind another car as it entered. She parked in the employee lot in the rear of the building and took an employee's identification badge by gunpoint to gain entry to the building. Jennifer then shot four workers on her way into the building and four more inside. Witnesses say she reloaded her gun at least once. There were 80 employees in the building. Many of them fled to a fire station across the street when they heard the first shots. 
It's unclear whether she targeted anyone specifically. All the dead, however, were minorities. Three were black, one was Chinese-American, one was Hispanic, and one Filipino. Dead in just a matter of moments were Z. Fairchild, 37, Malika Higgins, 28, Nicola Grant, 42, Guadalupe Swartz, 52, Dexter Shannon, 57, and Charlotte Colton, 44, who died the following day from her injuries. Only Beverly Graham, who would be found dead in her home the following day, was Caucasian. Jennifer DeMarco turned the gun on herself, committing suicide before police arrived at the scene. Authorities would later find notebooks full of writings in Jennifer's home that alluded to plots against her that she believed her former co-workers had taken part in. They also found a diary over 100 pages long with meticulous notes about all the perceived slights and offenses she'd been subjected to by numerous people. Jennifer DeMarco's rampage would be added to the many incidents of a former employee going postal. Going postal had become a term used to describe workplace shootings after several former and current postal workers went on shooting sprees in the 1980s and 1990s in the United States. In 2010, a 41-year-old professional woman would go on a rampage in Germany that would shock the nation. Her first victims were the result of a failed romantic relationship and a custody dispute, but she would continue on to target strangers. Why she would do so would remain a mystery. On Sunday, September 19, 2010, Sabine Rodmacher was a 41-year-old attorney living in Lorik, Germany, a town located close to the French and Swiss borders. She had been in a long-term relationship, and the couple had a child together, but now they were separated. Neighbors and co-workers would later report that Sabine was distressed about the collapse of her relationship and resentful that her ex now had a new romantic partner. Quick note, the names of Sabine's ex and her son are not listed in news reports that I found. Perhaps victims' names are withheld by European news sources in some cases. Sabine and the boy's father were also not in agreement about the terms of custody for their five-year-old son. Since June, her ex had custody of the boy and Sabine had visitations on the weekends. On this Sunday, Sabine was waiting for her ex to pick up their son at the end of the weekend visit. Before he arrived, Sabine knocked her son unconscious and then placed a plastic bag over his head, suffocating him. She then waited for the 44-year-old carpenter to arrive. When he did, she shot him once in the head and once in the neck before stabbing him. She then set fire to the apartment by dousing it with paint thinner and lighting a match. She left the apartment, and soon after, it exploded, injuring 17 people. She then crossed the street to St. Elizabethan Hospital. Nobody knows why she made this her next target. It was later reported that Sabine had been treated at the hospital in 2004 for a miscarriage, but it is unknown if this was the reason or it was simply nearby. She approached the hospital carrying a 22 caliber pistol and a knife. As soon as she was on the grounds, she fired the gun at passersby, injuring two people. A nurse at the hospital, Sister Xaviera, heard the shots and saw a woman approaching with a gun. She grabbed the phone to call emergency services. Sabine entered the hospital and was reloading her gun when she saw the nun on the phone. She pointed the gun at her, but she quickly ducked behind a counter. Sabine continued on, entering one of the hospital wards. 
She shot and then stabbed a 56-year-old male nurse and severely injured two visitors, as well as a police officer who happened to be there. Police arrived and Sabine opened fire on the officers. She was then shot 17 times by police until they were sure she was dead. The entire incident from the explosion to her fatal shooting lasted only 40 minutes. A neighbor of Sabine's told reporters she had lost everything, her relationship, her child, and her home. But I would never have thought that she was capable of something like this. Our last case about mass murder committed by a woman is a tragic story that took place in 2009 in Kuwait when a woman, overcome by jealousy and rage, took her revenge out on an entire wedding party. August 15, 2009, Jara, Kuwait. A wedding celebration was underway. The women and children were celebrating in a separate tent from the groom's party, as this was the custom at traditional Kuwaiti weddings. Over 200 people were packed into the tent. 23-year-old Nazra Yusuf Alenzi, according to her maid, poured gasoline around the outside of the tent before setting it ablaze. In seconds, the entire tent was engulfed in flames. Panicked wedding guests tried to flee, but many were trapped as the tent had only one exit. In only three minutes, the tent was entirely consumed. The bodies of those killed in the fire would be charred beyond recognition. DNA testing would have to be done to make identifications. In all, 58 people died and 90 were injured in the melee to escape the fire. All of the dead were women and children. It would be called the deadliest civilian disaster in Kuwait in modern times. Al-Enzi at first was identified as the former wife of the groom. It was said she was taking revenge on her ex-husband for divorcing her. Later, however, it would be clarified that Al-Enzi was still married to the man, and they had two children together. The wedding was a ceremony in which her husband, 36-year-old Zayed Zafiri, was taking a second wife. Men are allowed to take multiple wives in the Muslim Gulf state of Kuwait. The groom and his new bride were not in the tent when the fire was set and were uninjured. The bride's mother and sister, however, were killed. Al-Enzi was arrested and charged with premeditated murder and starting a fire with intent to kill. Police said she confessed to setting the tent on fire and said she had done so to avenge her husband's bad treatment of her and for taking a second wife. She would deny saying this and would state to investigators that she simply had sprinkled, quote, cursed water around the wedding tent. El Enzi's murder trial opened in August of 2009. She denied the charges. Her three lawyers called for her release, accusing the prison officials of mistreating their client. Defense lawyers would allege that Alenzi was two months pregnant when arrested and was deliberately aborted by a prison guard with the help of an Asian nurse. The attorney told reporters that Nazra Alenzi was made to take drugs that she was told were tranquilizers that would help to calm her down. They immediately caused the abortion, he said. He added that under Kuwaiti law, death sentences for pregnant women were automatically commuted to life imprisonment, which is why he claimed the prosecutor sought to terminate her pregnancy. There was another allegation made that the prison guard involved was a relative of her husband, and it was his wish to end the pregnancy. The guard had since been transferred to another prison. In March of 2010, Al-Enzi was found guilty of premeditated murder and sentenced to death. In Kuwait, death sentences are carried out by hanging. Her attorneys immediately appealed her sentence. 
Her death sentence triggered intense debate in the country. It was rare for a woman to be sentenced to death, rarer still for it to be carried out. Al-Enzi's case was only the second time a woman had received the death sentence in Kuwait. The first had been handed down in 2005 when a woman was accused of drug trafficking. The Court of Appeals then reduced her sentence to 15 years in prison. Defense attorneys tried to get their client's sentence reduced to life imprisonment. They felt that the sentence had been determined in advance even before all the facts of the case were in evidence. They believed public opinion and political interests had swayed the court. In Kuwait, families of the victims are given an option to surrender their rights to retribution. If they do so, a case can be waived by the court, and the defendant would be required to pay a fee to the victim's families at the court's determination. However, LNZ's attorneys believe that the families of the victims had great pressures exerted on them to seek the death penalty. Some believe that the defendant's age and inexperience, as well as the country's social problems, including the institution of polygamy, where men could take additional wives without clear justification, made Al-Enzi sympathetic. Others supported the death sentence on the grounds that it would be a deterrent to any other woman thinking of committing such an act, as well as to compensate for the pain and loss the victims and their families had been subjected to. In 2011, the Supreme Court upheld the appeals court's decision to execute LNZ. It was the first time in history that Kuwait's highest court upheld a death sentence for a woman. On January 25, 2017, Nasr LNZ was hanged along with six other condemned prisoners. They were the first executions to be carried out in Kuwait in several years. She was hanged beside a royal family member, Sheikh Faisal Abdullah Al Sabah who had been found guilty of killing his nephew in 2010. All the others who were executed were men. All were hanged for murder except a Bangladeshi man who was convicted for rape, kidnapping, and theft. As a result of the wedding day arson, Kuwait banned Bedouin-style wedding tents. Tragically, the number of mass shootings continues to grow, especially in the United States. While the U.S. has 5% of the world's population, it had nearly 31% of all public mass shootings recorded. While there are many proposals to try and stem the tide of this type of crime, including stricter gun laws and increased security in public places, it will probably be a long process to decrease the instances of mass shootings. What do we need to know to help keep ourselves and our loved ones safe in the meantime? Here are some suggestions from the Department of Homeland Security. You can find a link to this helpful guide in the show notes. Because active shooter situations are often over within 10 to 15 minutes and before law enforcement arrives on the scene, individuals must prepare themselves mentally and physically if they find themselves in such a situation. First, stay alert. Be aware of your environment and any possible danger. Take note of the two nearest exits in any facility you visit. Then, if a situation is in progress, First, evacuate if possible. Leave your belongings behind and help others escape if you can. Keep your hands visible when exiting. Law enforcement will need to identify you as a victim. Call 911 as soon as it's safe to do so. If you can't evacuate, hide out and use barricades. If you are in an office, lock the door and stay inside. If you're in a hallway, get to a room where you can lock yourself in. After locking the door, Blockaded as well with heavy furniture or other items. 
silence your cell phone, turn off any noise, radios, televisions, etc., and remain quiet. As a last resort, take action against the perpetrator if in immediate danger. Act as aggressively as possible. Throw items, improvise weapons, yell and alert others to your position. If you're responsible for safety at your business or workplace, you may want to get training on how to keep you and your employees safe. Security companies often provide free webinars to help you do just that. ADT Security Systems is hosting a free webinar on March 30th titled Active Shooter Preparedness and Response, taught by Special Agent Robert DePriest of the FBI Active Shooter Unit. I've included a link to register in the show notes. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. But before we end, I want to announce a couple of winners of OUAC sticker packs. I picked a few listeners who left reviews on iTunes. I appreciate you rating and reviewing. Here are this week's winners. Kay Kathleen, Doe Miller, and Top Chef Fan. Congratulations. Email your mailing address to Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R, at truecrimepodcast.com, and I'll get your prize out to you. If you want to be in the drawing for next week, just write a review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. You can support the show by going to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Until next time, be good to one another. (laughs) 